Well, happy Eastertide. Happy Eastertide. Did you, um, I don't know. I feel like we've recorded an episode after Easter in years past. Yeah, I guess we did. Um, and this year we didn't because it's been so weird, right? No, I mean like this is it. We're, we're still after Easter. Well, oh yeah, that's true. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You win. You win this round. Okay. Although it's still technically Easter. Exactly. So it's not even after Easter. No, no, it's still it's still very much during the season. I mean the the octave of Easter is over. Right. But we're still very much during the Easter season. And and this year I'm obviously like a lot less critical of people who are not celebrating the fullness of the fifty days of Easter. <laughs> no kidding. I mean it's pretty much all we can do to get ourselves in gear for uh for a holy week and Easter if that yeah, we, uh, yep. Everything is, everything is off the table. And so, yeah, I don't know about you, but we definitely did things in a new way, um, for Holy Week. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was strange in some ways, almost even stranger than last year. Cause last year we basically did nothing or we did, we did some online and pre-recorded services. And, and this year we were able to be in person, um, which was which was like just similar enough, but not quite right. You know, there were certain things missing mm-hmm. that made it feel even more bizarre. Sure. Like uh, Maundy Thursday without the Pange Lingua. Aha. That is very dear to you, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. And I don't, I, I, I would be at a loss to explain why, but it is. Hmm. We were able to do the exalta, but that was it musically for um, for the vigil. Well, I mean, if you're going to choose one thing from the vigil, right, you might choose that, or you might, yeah, you probably probably would choose that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I did choose that, so I think we can safely say that I would choose that. Uh huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm Ian, and I'm a priest. I'm David, and I'm an organist. And this is all things right and musical. speaking of the vigil and of uh singing did did you sing about the bees and and the exalted no so that's um i think the lutherans have that in their exalted text Mm -hmm. uh but we it's not in the prayer book text so i don't um as much as i would love to have it in there i don't i don't um i don't pencil that in in the margins wait i i have i have shamelessly penciled that in for for many years now um uh-huh. but i guess this time for the first year i was really aware of how much the prayer book exalted is a shortening of the traditional text mm-hmm. i mean the 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 traditional exalted goes on quite a bit longer it does um, than the prayer book mirrors and i hadn't realized that and so i i found myself wondering um how many places are really using alternative exaltates? I mean, how many places are using something other than what's printed in the prayer book, the the notation that's found in the altar book? Hmm. Um, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. I, I would, uh, I, I have never, <laughs> this may be naive of me, I've never heard of any place actually doing it in different text than what's in the in the BCP. I'm, I, I don't for a second mean that or think that that means that no one is actually doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I would be surprised if it were a huge number of places just based on my experience. Yeah. One thing, one thing that really surprised me, um, was I was aware of a place that had used in the past, a choral setting and I forget exactly what was involved, but that it had been handbells and, and I think, you know, probably the parts were sung by a soloist, parts were sung by a choir in harmony. And and for my money, that just seems too too involved for that part of the service, um, for the beginning of the service. 
Yeah, I mean, you could make the argument that the that the hymnal 1982 and the BCP 1979 are a little overly obsessed with um, playing chant. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that particularly seems like a moment where that's what it needs to be, right? I think so, in the sense that what happens musically there, I believe, is meant to. Um, mirror what happens with the light. So if you have one one light that's lit from the new fire, if you have one Paschal candle, um, which I, I do believe is correct, you should have one Paschal candle, um, then you would have one voice um, yeah. singing the exalted. And, and I think that's, that, that's what the prayer book rubric says. It says the deacon or other person appointed um, sings the exalted. I mean, you're right that the rubrics say that it's, or, or at least seem to assume that it's a single voice singing the exulta, which I think really, especially if you've had the organ silent or no, or even no music during the triduum, um, makes a the exultant more impactful, but but having a single voice also makes the the sort of great alleluia that moment where. Uh, we we say it's technically you know like officially Easter, mm-hmm. and you have that polyphony for the first time. I think it um, it makes that moment more impactful. Well, and and I think that's worth that's worth some reflection too, because um, I uh, you know like like everything I had to look at the service with fresh eyes um, this year, and um, I, I really began. I really began to reconsider the Easter moment just in light of a couple of things that I read in the prayer book. Mm-hmm. So one is um, that the Alleluia Christ is risen at the at the Eucharist, um, which you know that sort of I think for many people at the vigil defines where the Easter moment begins. Mm-hmm. Um, that is optional. Yeah, it says the celebrant may say to the people. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Right. And I've never been to a vigil that doesn't use that, that versicle and response um, at that moment. But I, I found myself wondering what it would be like without it. Yeah. Because I think without it, then whatever piece of music uh, follows, one of those three prescribed canticles, Gloria, Te Deum, Pascha Nostrum, then that sort of, that sort of announces that Easter mm-hmm. has arrived. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, I, 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 and I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I feel about that. The, the, the trouble is the canicles are, are occupy one of two extremes, right? So like for most Gloria settings, Mm -hmm. it's either, I, I mean, most of them, you either never sing them or you sing them so frequently that they're extremely familiar, right? Well, they are, but I mean, even let's assume that you, you're at a parish that knows one Gloria and they know it well, they still haven't sung it through all of Lent. That's true. I mean, maybe, maybe you sang it on Monday, Thursday, if you're one of those, if you're one of those places, but I think it would still, <laughs> it would still be impactful, um, singing yeah. it at that moment in the, in the Easter vigil. Yeah. But I, I think I know where you're going next is you're going to say, how many places, how many congregations know a Tadeum really well? Or, or, or a Pascha Nostra. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I agree. And, and you know, part of, the, part of the grace in all of this, if you want to call it that, is I knew that this year we didn't want, we didn't want um, people singing along because it's actually forbidden in our diocese. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it seemed like a unique opportunity to sing something um, unfamiliar actually that that Mm -hmm. people wouldn't you know feel the they wouldn't keenly feel the absence of of their participation so so i did choose one of the today settings from the hymnal uh one of the chant settings that was um i think served that moment really well but uh, i don't think anyone in the pews was tempted to sing along with (laughs) i'm sure they weren't but that yeah that's that's really fascinating um because you know, even in normal years, that could be an opportunity to use a choral setting of a Tadeum or a Pascha Nostrum. Oh, that sure, might be yeah, really, yeah. really beautiful and really impactful. Yeah, um, because that's always uh, 
this is probably going to get me in trouble saying it, but that's always seemed a little, as much as I love the, the canticles, it's always seemed a little anticlimactic as a moment. You, you, um, proclaim that Christ is risen and then you immediately go and sing one of the things that you, um, either always sing or never sing, you know, <laughs> that there is no middle ground there. Well, no. And yeah. I think, I think you've identified another way, which is to, to have a choral setting of something. Um, if you have, if you have the, um, opportunity to, to have a choir sing at that moment, uh, which we did not this year. Um, although effectively that's what I did by having a, a cantor sing a chant setting, mm-hmm. um, of the Deum. Well, it's interesting that you, that you call it anticlimactic because as I started to consider this moment in the service, I think we try to, we, we do everything we can to make this moment a climax. Yeah. So we, we take the option to, to say or shout, Alleluia, Christ has risen. Um, so that there's no doubt, <laughs> so that there's no <laughs> doubt, like we're talking about Easter now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, if the church has artificial lights and whose church doesn't in this day and age, you turn them up to 11. Like it's, it's so offensively bright at that moment in every church I've ever been to. Uh-huh. Um, and if people have bells, you know, they ring that that's great. And if the church has an organ, then it's like as loud as you've ever heard it. It's like, Oh my God, why is that so loud? Um, <laughs> and, and I, I, I want to acknowledge, I have been guilty of all of these things. Sure. But, but, you know, none of that, (laughs) none of that is listed in the prayer book. What it says is the candles at the altar may now be lighted from the Paschal candle. Right. And so I wonder what, what would that be like? What if we actually kind of did the bare bones of what the prayer book says at this moment, which, you know, this was the year to do it, Mm -hmm. is that you take a moment to light the candles and you do that in silence. And I think, you know, some places already do that. Mm-hmm. But then what if we made the decision to, to deliberately omit the Alleluia Christ is risen that appears there mm-hmm. and to let the light of Easter kind of slowly spread from whatever canticles being sung, whether it's the most familiar Gloria you've ever heard or whether it's some sort of elaborate chanted to Deum or some choral setting of the Pascha Nostrum, whatever it is. And then during that, to maybe to maybe bring the lights up a little bit, to, you know, to sort of acknowledge like we're lighting, we're lighting the church a little bit. And these are the these are the, the lights that we have to do it. But if you can, not to turn them not to turn them all the way up like they would be for Sunday morning, but to still keep it that sort of candlelit sense of you know worship at night. Mm-hmm. And and the theological reflection that I had in in conjunction with all this is that. Um, Scripture does not pinpoint the moment of resurrection at all. We just know that the tomb was sealed and the next morning it was unsealed. And somewhere, somewhere during that night, um, in other words, during the night that we celebrate the Easter vigil, the resurrection occurred, but there, there were no witnesses to it, so to speak, Mm -hmm. which is, which is opposed from the moment of Jesus death. I mean, that moment was witnessed by everyone gathered around and, you know, the scripture records that the, the veil of the temple was torn in two from mm-hmm. top to bottom right at that moment. So, I mean, there, there are moments connected with the passion and resurrection of Jesus um, that, are, that are identified clearly as being, this is the moment that it happened. But the resurrection is not that. Agreed. Uh, but by celebrating the vigil itself, we're sort of taking a position, Right. Like we're not, we can't, we can't finish that service out in candlelight and then pretend that we've celebrated the Eucharist, but we're not sure exactly when the resurrection occurs. Like we're, we are proclaiming the resurrection at the, at the Eucharist, at the vigil. And we can, we can absolutely do that, uh, um, more minimalistically with, with, you know, candlelight, um, however we want to do that. But I don't think we can say, well, maybe the resurrection took place now and maybe it took place later. We're taking a position by virtue of celebrating that vigil. No, absolutely. And, and, and I think that that is the I don't want to I don't want to discount the belief uh, that the resurrection happened during the Easter night. Um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to take away from the, the first Eucharist of Easter being an Easter Eucharist, Mm -hmm. but I guess, I I guess what I'm seeing in those things, like with flipping the lights on from, you know, basically pitch darkness to all the way bright and then having the organ like thunder all of a sudden, I mean, I feel like we're sort of trying to create a single moment, um, Mm -hmm. by doing those things rather than to sort of let, 
um, let the, let the, uh, I don't know, to let the, the, I don't want to say the news of the resurrection, <laughs> mm-hmm. because I kind of feel like that's what the Easter, Easter day, well, uh, I feel that's sort of what more Easter day is about, mm-hmm. that the resurrection has occurred, and then the news is starting to spread. Um, if the vigil really is to mark the resurrection itself liturgically, I wonder if we could get away less from like one moment in the service where all of a sudden everything is different and to sort of let the service have more of a transitional quality. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? It does. It does. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I don't, I haven't made up my mind about it, but, uh, but I definitely hear what you're saying. I do want to talk more about candles. Oh, okay. What else you got about candles? Well, a lot. So, so, <laughs> so what's your, um, did you do a vigil this year with a, with a new fire and a Paschal candle and all that? We did. Yeah. Okay. So walk us through, like, how do you light the fire? How do you light the Paschal candle? Um, how do you get the candle in? And then how do you light the people's candles? So, uh, this may be the wrong answer, um, but I use a, a little solid fire starter. It's mm-hmm. like a little block of something that's white and burns very quickly mm-hmm. um, to get the fire started because, <laughs> I, like, I understand that there are plenty of people who would disagree with that. Many of them were probably Boy Scouts. Um, <laughs> but but there's nothing about... I, I mean, there's nothing about the, the lighting of the new flame that I think needs to be flint and steel, right? And there are people who disagree with me about this, that it needs to be, you know, like an old-fashioned fire. Mm-hmm. But that's not, I mean, that's not what we're doing. Well, like it's and, the, the, and I know that that's, I know that that's like part of the traditional ethos of the service, but uh, you know, you talk about things that are not in the prayer book. I don't think that's mentioned. I don't think the, I don't think anything is mentioned about the fire, except that you start it. The fire is kindled. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that is a little bit unclear and, and you see that done different ways. I mean, is the fire kindled in the presence of the people or not? Uh, yeah, I do. But mm-hmm. that's also why I use a starter because mm-hmm. there is nothing more anticlimactic <laughs> to this than like sitting there with a flint and steel and trying to get the tinder to catch and, you know, having people stand around for 10 minutes waiting first for the, for the tinder to catch and then for the fire to actually be big enough to, to be talking about it in the terms that we use in our liturgy without feeling utterly ridiculous. <laughs> well, but again, like you're, you're worried with, you're worried with some kind of efficiency in the service. And I just feel like, you know, the great vigil of Easter, you're, you're kind of in for the whole ride. Like if, if, if we have trouble lighting the fire, then we all have trouble lighting the fire together. You know? I, I, so I, I, it's not, it's not for the purpose of efficiency. It's for the purpose of aptness of the symbol, yeah. right? Yeah. No, no, I'm like, with you. This is not a service that is going to go quickly by any means. Although, you know, if it takes a half hour before you even begin, then you're <laughs> you're really behind the eight ball. And I think people are going to have a lot less tolerance for you doing eight of the nine readings, right? <laughs> but um, but if we're talking about the if we're talking about the light of Christ being rekindled, right? If we're talking about about the new flame as a symbol of resurrection, like. Does that really work if you sort of sit there and watch it, you know, slowly sort of catch fire to the little tinder and then eventually like a couple twigs catch and you wait a little while longer and, you know, 20 minutes later, you finally have a roaring fire? Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you're right. So I I don't know. It's probably it's probably prudent to do one of two things to to have a strategy like you have of of a fast burning fire starter to get things going. Or to have a Boy Scout um, in residence on the altar guild <laughs> right. who can like prepare, you know, who can build your new fire in a way that's guaranteed to impress. Right. Or, um, you know, to get the fire going 15, 20 minutes, or, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes um, before the appointed time of the liturgy. Um, 
that that one I'm a little bit nervous about because it's not clear it's not clear that that really needs to happen sort of in front of everybody who's there for the service or not yeah but it's it feels a it feels a little wrong it does it? it does it feels like you're it feels like you're kind of um doing one of the one of the ritual actions in a way that people would miss it yeah that feels important that you that you actually see a fire started for this service yeah yeah okay so we've talked a little bit about the fire yes and then one of the one of the fun things is trying to get the 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 roaring fire onto the paschal candle right yeah, which is, I mean, the other reason to use that I use a starter is because it makes that so much simpler, right? Like it goes from zero to 60 in a matter of moments, and then you can, you can just stick the candle in and, and get it lit. Oh, you know? so you actually, you actually stick the Pascal candle in itself. Oh yeah. That seems risky though, doesn't it? Sure. <laughs> okay. But I mean, that's a risk I'm willing to take, right? Like the candle's going to get lit. It may get a little melty, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's like, to me, that's, that's a, that's much less of a problem symbolically in our, in our sort of symbolic language than standing there waiting on a fire to get, to get really get going. Yeah. No, no, no. I I mean, I, I can't argue with the symbol of putting the unlit Paschal candle in the fire and and Uh, emerging with, I mean, I think it helps contain the progression. Yeah. I, I would wager that most places use some other. Um, some other wick, uh, some other like a taper. tinder, yeah, to transfer yeah. the flame to the Paschal candle, just so as not to not to mar it in the in the in the heat of the fire, I guess. Yeah, I've even heard about a spaghetti noodle. Is that something that would burn? Could you use a spaghetti noodle to? You you could like a sure. Dr- a I don't dry know why one. you would use that over a taper. I don't, I don't know either. I just. There's I mean, spaghetti will burn, but somewhat unreliable. <laughs> That's what it seems like to me too. There's lots of lots of different advice. There's lots of different recipes uh, and procedures for how to do this, how to do this whole thing. I use a wet spaghetti. Noodle. <laughs> I know, right? That's not going to work. <laughs> Man, that liturgy was a real limp noodle. <laughs> I see what you did there. Yeah. So then, so so we've got we've got a fire and we've got a Paschal candle burning, mm-hmm. um, but you've also passed out tapers to the people. So at, at what point are those lit? Uh, those are lit after the. Um, so you say that you say the prayer, the collect, um, following the lighting of the new flame. Then the Paschal candle is lit. You process by the prayer book. You process to the sanctuary, which I was, um, or to the chancel rather, which I was sort of surprised to to note this time. Um, I was. I'm, I, this is my first. Was my first Easter at a new parish, and so I was um, planning the liturgy for the first time in a new space, and so trying to think through where we would do the different things, and realize that the the rubrics actually say as soon as the Paschal candle is lighted from the new flame, and then you process to the chancel. Right. Um, I th- I th- I think um, in the in the many different places and contexts that I've been a part of the vigil, um, I'm pretty sure more often than not we've lit our candles before mm-hmm. going into the darkened church. Yeah. Yeah. So what we did, we actually did it sort of by the book this time, so to speak. Um, I've even been places where the readings take place. So you you light the Paschal candle, uh, you light the new flame in the Paschal candle, sometimes move to a new place for the readings, and then to another place um, for for the baptism before moving into the chancel for into the nave for um for the eucharist so sometimes it's in four different places sometimes it's in a couple different places but this was actually the first year i think that i've done a vigil where we actually did it quote by the book yeah right 
and we lit the we lit the Paschal candle from the new flame and then processed into the nave and um, and lit everyone's candles there and then. And I'm gathering that your liturgy was at you know shortly after sundown. It actually started a little before sundown. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but close enough. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we won't tell people that you started a little early. <laughs> um, so, and I guess uh, you know, as long as the light is still fading, it's probably not prohibitively dark in the church for people to come in. Or is that, or is that something that people struggle with to find to find a entrance to a pew? We so we did not have difficulty with people finding their pews and anything like that. We did have. Um, we did have some people having a little bit of trouble seeing the readings. I see. Because I think that's the practical concern, though, isn't it? Is that if you, if you tell people to follow the Paschal candle into the church mm-hmm. and they don't have any other light to see by, yeah. how, how are they supposed to really kind of find their way in the, in the dark? Or is that, just, is that just part of the fun of this service? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't... I, it, that's a good question. I don't know that I've been anywhere... Um, where the, the, the timing of the vigil has been such that it's been dark enough that that's been a major issue, mm-hmm. um, which isn't to say that it wouldn't be anywhere, obviously. Right. Well, like, I mean, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is if, if you're doing the, if you're beginning the vigil before sunrise, I mean, then it probably really is dark. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that's a, I mean, that's a fair question. I think in that case, you'd have to at least have the lights in the, in the nave somewhat on. Mm-hmm. Or, so or some kind are, of some kind of plan for lighting right. um, people into the into the otherwise pitchback church. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's an interesting logistical thing. Be interested to hear how, how other people handle that, or if it maybe it's just not an issue. I don't know. Although although I have to say the the reading the way that these. Well, no. Okay. Well, I think, go ahead and finish that thought, because I think we're thinking the same thing, is that the Paschal candle has not arrived yet. Yeah, it's just, the the rubric itself is ambiguous. It says, um, so first it says the Paschal candle is then lighted from the newly kindled fire, and the deacon, the celebrant, if there is no deacon, bearing the candle, leads the procession to the chancel, pausing three times and singing or saying the light of Christ. Thanks be to God. If candles have been distributed to members of the congregation, they are lighted from the Paschal candle at this time. This time is ambiguous enough because, because of the way that this is, that the light of Christ is sort of mid rubric. Right. So does it, does it mean that, um, the people's candles are lit after the third light of Christ? Right. Or does it mean at the time when you start the procession? at the time of leading the procession that the people's candles are lit. I, I, I'm not saying I think that's what it means, but you could at least make an argument. And and there's, there's another, there's another thing about the procession that I kind of had a fresh observation about that, um, you know, reading kind of reading through a lot of liturgical guides, it just strikes me as like, I've just seen it done differently in enough places that I wonder you know, if this is something that's really, if this is really known or if, if people actually make a conscious choice about this or not, this procession really is supposed to be different. It's supposed to be, um, the Paschal candle leading the way into the church, um, incense leading the Paschal candle. If you're using incense, I think the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire leading the way. Um, but then immediately after the Paschal candle, um, you have well, the the deacon uh, carrying the candle, or the cantor um, singing the light of Christ right behind the candle. If if you're doing it that way, and then the celebrant for the liturgy should follow the candle, so that the clergy are actually leading the people into the church. It's not a typical procession where clergy come last. In this case, the clergy and the candle really are leading the people into the church. Um, sort of exactly like Palm Sunday, I think, uh, which is which is another place you kind of see clergy deferentially waiting for people to get into the church first, which is which is not what it says to do. Um, it's not the custom. The, the the tradition is for the the clergy to actually lead the procession on on those occasions. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Um, it's it's one of those things that's worth changing up if for no other reason than to make us examine it. The the original meaning, okay, of 
um, clergy coming last in a procession was for the purpose of humility. Um, this is this is a tradition that really came from Byzantine court customs, and usually it was the emperor who went in first, right, in a in a in a parade because then he could take his seat and watch the rest of the parade come through. So the place of honor was first. Um, and we developed the custom of having clergy come last in order to recognize <laughs> as an attempt at, at instilling humility in clergy and saying the people who go in first, the, 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 the laity, the lay people are the more important members of this particular procession. Right. 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 Um, but except yeah you and i have talked about this before about processions how how now yeah. the, the 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 final position in in the in the ecclesiastical position is necessarily the position of honor so who's last is it the is it the celebrant or is it the rector or is it the bishop that day you know right yeah. right and that's and and it's 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 so pervasive a custom that it's that everything we do last is the place of honor exactly right? so like academic processions parades whatever whoever's last is the biggest deal. And that's not the way that our processions are meant to be. So sometimes it is good to change it up just so that we think, wait a second. Yeah. And, and so, so I wonder if, if there's this kind of subconscious thing of clergy being, oh, well, I, you know, I have to come last because I have to be in the place of honor. Right. But on Palm Sunday and, and the Easter vigil, it doesn't work that way. You, you right. lead the people into the church. That's the way the procession works. Yeah. Yeah. I forget. I forget which resource it was I was reading about that in but anyway there it is there it is Right. So, and then uh, continuing my obsession with candles. Yes. The Paschal candle does arrive somewhere. Um, I, I think there's there's a suggestion that it's headed for the chancel, right? Uh, leads the procession yes. to the chancel. So, does that mean that the that the Paschal candle is in the chancel for the for the Easter Vigil liturgy? I believe so. Okay. Is that where you put yours? Uh. Well. Yes. <laughs> Would there be another choice? Uh, yeah. I mean, potentially. I, you know, again, not according to the rubrics, right? Um, yeah, except that it's not totally clear. I mean, it just says the Paschal candle is placed in its stand. Well, sure. But the bearing the candle, the deacon leads the procession to the chancel. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't lead the procession to the chancel and then walk somewhere else to put the candle in a stand, right? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you could interpret that that, that way if you want to. And obviously, you know, recognizing a, a diversity of liturgical space, um, I think, you know, some places would not have a, a traditional chancel arrangement, but some kind of raised platform um, that, that uh, where things are clearly visible, where it's clearly visible and, and feels sort of in front of the people, I think is the, is the place. Yeah. Ours was actually, <laughs> I have to come clean. Ours was not technically in the chancel. It was right in front of the altar rail uh -huh. because we move the font up and the fonts on the font will roll, but we, we can't lift it up onto the, into the chancel. I see. Right? I see. Um, and I wanted the, the Paschal candle to be right there with the font. Um, but it was, it was near the altar rail, basically right by the, the step where, where everyone kneels at the altar rail. Okay. In front of the chancel. I mean, that seems close enough. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't lose sleep over it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, um, you know, that's especially we had a baptism at our Easter vigil. Right. And, um... I think making the font front and center and, and sort of as central as the table in that liturgy, if you can do it, is ideal. Um, and then and having the, having the Paschal candle associated 
with both the font and the table is a good thing. Yeah, no, I agree with you that the, the, the Paschal candle should definitely be where the baptism is at that service. Well, but then let's, let's think about the Paschal candle into Eastertide. Um, because, um, I think its position in the chancel is just so, um, I think there's just so much to commend that. And yet on Easter day, it's, it's sort of moved usually in most places it's, it's moved out of the chancel. And I was really struck, um, two years ago, I had the opportunity, uh, to visit St. Thomas Episcopal church in New York city for the first time. Um, and it was during Easter tide and the Paschal candle was front and center in the chancel. And they also have the, um, the distinction of having a sort of massive Paschal candle and Paschal candle stand that, that befits their space. Um, but it really was uh, a very clear symbol of the Easter season that, you know, this is something that's ongoing and you can't mistake it when, when this Paschal candle is, is, is left out and left burning. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think that's a good thing. I think we, unfortunately, very many places have a Paschal candle that's almost indistinguishable from other altar candles. Mm -hmm. Um, except maybe it's got a little bit more color on it. Um, and probably, and probably, you know, the stand could be something else that sets it apart. The, the the scale and height of the stand perhaps. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I've often said we should make at least a big, as big a deal about the Paschal candle as we do lighting the Advent wreath. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, and a lot of places have the Advent wreath front and center and that's a, yeah, or, or at know, least, or, or at least liturgy. sort of, yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good comparison. I mean, if you, if your Advent wreath is somehow more visible than your Paschal candle, I think that's worth some reflection. Yeah. Um, is Easter more important than Advent? I would say yes. Uh, you would say you would say no. <laughs> I I wouldn't say no. I might think about it. <laughs> that was just for Scott Gunn. That's good. Uh, no, I like I, I like Advent a lot, but there's no question that that Easter is more central, mm-hmm. right? Right. Right. Well, and so I'm trying to think about the options uh, where I've seen the Paschal candle during the Easter season, because I think if if you have done a vigil, um, most likely you've put it in the chancel or you've put it kind of on the central axis of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the impulse might be to move it away for the rest of the services in Eastertide. So mm-hmm. one of the places it could be moved to is near the altar. Uh, I guess the gospel side of the altar, but I'm not really sure. Um, is that something you've seen? I'm trying to think. Um, it's definitely something I've seen this year. Um, I'm just sort of, I'm just sort of more keenly aware of candles this year. You may have noticed a theme. (laughs) I have, (laughs) uh, I, I can't think of, this is, I mean, this is terrible, but I can't think of where, I mean, all I can think of at the moment is, is the last parish I was at and where it was, was, was still pretty central through Easter. Okay. Um, but, but the other parishes I've served at or been a part of, I honestly cannot remember where the Paschal candle went during Easter tide. Don't you think that's kind of an issue? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to start to lobby strongly for, um, front and center. Somebody responded to me on Twitter that they had a wide aisle in their parish, a wide center, central aisle, mm-hmm. and that the Paschal candle was actually sort of left there um, amidst the people um, where they, they had to sort of, they were sort of forced to encounter it on their way in and out of the church. I think that's such a good thing. I'm, I mean, mine is, it, mine is stuck right in the center. We haven't been, we've been, um, We've been doing communion in one kind, bread alone, and I've been taking it to everyone at their seats mm-hmm. um, to sort of minimize contacts. But even in future years, I think I'm going to leave the candle right there so that people have to walk around it, mm-hmm. um, right in, right at the right front and center at the at the uh, at the altar rail, so that people have to walk around it to, in order to come up and get communion. Like it should be conspicuous. It should be noticeable. Yeah, I agree. Um, I can imagine an architectural arrangement where the font is close enough to the front and the center of things 
that you can place the candle in a way that's clearly next to the font. Um, and one of the reasons you might do that, I think in a lot of places, low Sunday uh, becomes a baptism day um, just because there's a resistance. You and I have talked about this. There's a resistance to doing baptisms on Easter day right. um, rather than, you know, the Sunday after Easter. Um, sorry, the second Sunday of Easter. Um, but I think there there may be just some sort of inertia that get, that that leaves the candle kind of next to the font after that after that second Sunday of Easter, yeah. And it's not returned to a more prominent to a more prominent position later. Yeah, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Page 294 at the Eucharist, there's another candle ru- rubric. Mm-hmm. The candles at the altar may now be lighted from the Paschal candle. And that's that moment where we get nuts with the um, lighting often. Right. But it's just, it's, it's just really fascinating that there's the, there, there are no less than three moments, really, I guess, four um, rubrics having to deal with how you light this particular service. Right. Well, I mean, just to reflect on that even more, I mean, I think that is an argument for however you do it, lighting the candles in the altar at the dark, because if someone, you know, if the organ is blaring and the bells are ringing and the choir is, is screaming away on the Gloria or the Deum or whatever they've sung, you may not notice an acolyte up there lighting the altar candles. And I think, <laughs> you know, there, there's nothing that says that people have to notice that, but right. it, it kind of feels like that, that might be, that might be kind of a nice move. Yeah. Um, to let that, to let that speak. I, I don't know. I, I could be persuaded either way on that, honestly, but um. I think, I, I, I think it's powerful, right? Um, if, there are, there are, especially if you have a baptism. Um, so there are two, there are two layers of options to this, but mm-hmm. you, you light the new flame, you light the Paschal candle from it, you light the candles of the people. And then if you have a baptism and you, you optionally light a candle and give it to the family, mm-hmm. Like there are just so many layers of symbolism around the light of Christ sort of permeating, adding all uh, this, adding all this light. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just, I, I think, I think there's a reason it's done that way. And, and we should, we should, um, do it carefully, meaning with care, not mm-hmm. like delicately, but, um, there's a lot there. Uh, that I think, that I think you could chew on for a good long time. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, there's a lot of detail with the vigil, so there's a lot to think about. I mean, if we go back to the people's candles at the vigil, um, I think most often those are extinguished at the end of the exalted. Um, not always. And then people sit down and listen to the readings. Mm-hmm. But in some places, the baptism becomes an occasion to relight them. And so then you, then you have this, this, uh, situation where the entire community is holding a, a candle and yeah. there's even a new candle given to the, to the baptism, to the, to whoever's just been baptized. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a sense that the light is growing with the, right. with the newest Christians who have just yeah. been baptized. That's exactly what I mean. And mm. it's, and it's this, this tangible conspicuous symbol of the fact that that this community has grown, right, um, and that Christ's light has grown in the world, mm-hmm. and then with this new community, uh, we're doing something that we haven't done since since Thursday. Uh, we haven't celebrated the Eucharist. We might have received it on Good Friday from the Reserve Sacrament, but then yeah. the candles at the altar are lighted again, which is a which is a big deal in the Holy Week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Super cool. say something else about candles yeah i have i have more about candles okay yeah you do so one of the liturgies that's been kind of my best friend throughout the pandemic um is an order of worship for the evening 
Uh-huh. And I know that you and I have talked a little bit about that. Um, just a little bit, though, I think, right? Okay, yeah. Just, I'm, I'm, ha- I'm, believe me, I'm very happy to talk more about it. <laughs> um, but I've been, I've been really delving into this, and um, this is an ancient evening prayer order um, that is centered around the lighting of candles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the way the the way the prayer book service reads, um, I'll give a page number here in just a second. 109 page 109 in the book of common prayer um is you start the service in darkness or at least partial darkness and the first thing that happens um is a candle a single candle is brought into uh into the church and by its light there are there are prayers um for there's a thanksgiving for light and prayers for light and that kind of thing um uh, it could be a single candle it could be um, two acolytes bearing torches uh, together. In the Easter season, interestingly, the Paschal candle is uh, what's burning brightly. So there again, it seems to me, for that service, that's a really good argument for, you know, the Paschal candle needs to be conspicuous. Um, mm-hmm. Probably for that service, it needs to be in the chancel, since um, the officiant will go to the front of the room and start the service. Um, but that the light is not carried in procession, as best I can tell, it's you sort of you sort of arrive where the light is already burning at Easter, which I think is interesting. And I read one I read one history of the service that says this dates all the way back to a very early um, lucernarium, uh, a service of Thanksgiving for the light, mm-hmm. where the tradition was um, there was a candle, uh, there was a flame constantly kept burning in the sepulchre. So the, at the Holy Sepulcher, um, there was a flame kept constantly burning. And one of, the, one of the rites in the evening was for someone to go and light a candle from that eternal flame and to bring it out of the tomb and, and for people to pray by its light. So that sounds like a, a pretty incredible pedigree for something like this, that this would be something... Yeah. Obviously, you know, with with geographical distance being what it is, we can't get that that holy flame, all of us. But we can we can continue that that right and that Thanksgiving. Um, uh, so that's that's something that fascinated me about that. Yeah, and and if you know that history and can sort of lean into it or or emphasize it, it really lends a lot more meaning to the Fos Hilleron. Yeah, exactly. Which which for a lot of people is a very um what's 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 the word I'm looking for? It's a it, it's in some ways a very odd text. Hmm. For some people. Mm-hmm. Um in that you're you're singing a hymn about light when you're um having evening prayer, you know. I don't know. That doesn't it's, seem so weird. I mean, well, especially I think I will say I think it makes a tremendous amount of sense um, in this service, which actually has a, a liturgy around the lighting of candles. And and here again, um, on page one twelve of the order of worship for the evening, there are specific rubrics about lighting the candles at the altar and then other candles and lamps as may con- be convenient. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Fost Hilleran is definitely. Um, sung kind of in in response to that, in, to that spreading of the light in the church. So that makes a lot of sense to me. At evensong, at, at, in the evening prayer uh, service of the church, um, I'm I'm not really inclined to include the Fos Hilleran at, at kind of a traditional choral evensong. I know that a lot of my colleagues are. Mm-hmm. Um, it is optional in evening prayer, right. and I, I just don't really find that it that it kind of makes as much sense there for me yeah i think that's what i'm i think that's what i'm talking about is that uh it's one of those things that i don't i i I don't know i don't know how to explain it and maybe my experience is unique but until you've until you've had this as part of an order of worship for the evening and and if you don't know that history behind it and the idea that the, the the there is and we have this at the vigil too, right? Like the there there are parts of the exultant that are sung to the that are sung about the candle itself, mm-hmm. right? 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 And and identifying that that light with the light of Christ, right? Mm-hmm. 
Um, and the same thing is happening with the Fos Hilaron, the O gracious light, pure brightness of the ever living Father in heaven. That first verse is not, is talking about not just the light of Christ, but this candlelight that's come out to illuminate the darkness, mm-hmm. um, and identifying that with Christ. And and if you if you eliminate half of that symbol, it just it feels like there's something missing. Right, right. So if in, in other words, if you're not doing that sort of in conjunction with the the candle the candle right the uh, candle lighting right. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, that makes sense that makes sense to me. And then and then the other thing that I read was a, a suggestion and I think it's a very good one that the lighting of the the kindling of the new fire and the lighting of the paschal candle itself are actually an elaboration of this ancient lucinarium uh, candle candle lighting liturgy. Yeah, that would and that wouldn't surprise me. Although I wouldn't have um, I, I wouldn't have sworn to that before now, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Well, there's there's a so part of the connection I think is there's um, a wonderful tradition of um, chants that were that were sung uh, for this for this act, for the candle lighting act in, in the evening. And I think some of these are found in the Ambrosian rite and have continued to this day. Um, in the Episcopal Hymnal 1982, we have them in the service music appendix. This is only in the spiral bound mm-hmm. copy that you typically find on the organ bench or in the choir the, room. The secret hymnal. Yeah, I mean, it really kind of is. There's a, there's a lot in there that, I mean, even as, a, even as a professional organist in the Episcopal Church for many years, I just was not uh, pointed to that. And there's, there's uh, quite a few interesting resources back there. Yeah. So... I'm actually in the early stages of planning a series of services uh, for next season um, that will that will take place uh, with this liturgy, and so they will enable us to use some of those lucernarium chants, um, which are resp- responsorial, assuming we can sing by then with cantors and congregations going back and forth. Um, and there's different different chants for different seasons of the year, um, and, and there's a number of choices just for for. Um, general services that don't take place during a particular season. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm really excited about that. Just sort of the the richness and texture um, that that will give. That that music will speak directly to that to that act of lighting the candles and the the spreading of the light and the thanksgiving for light. That's an integral part of that service. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of All Things Right and Musical. If you've enjoyed this episode in which we were obsessed with candles, we hope you will tell us about it. You can find us on the web at writeandmusical.org. That's spelled R-I-T-E and musical.org. Find us on Facebook, where you can interact with your hosts and with other podcast listeners. A special thanks to our generous patrons who support this show on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next time.